You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lecture notes entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, Their Activity in Our Visible World, translated by Christian von Arnhem. Lecture 1, given in Vienna on the 5th of November, 1907, entitled The So-Called Dangers of Occult Development. When we talk about occultism, or indeed the occult development of the human being, we must first and foremost discuss how the cultivation of such development relates to actual theosophical work in the world. The latter has, since it began, performed its task specifically in that it made a certain sum of occult truths accessible to humanity. These truths about the supersensory worlds with which we can familiarize ourselves in the theosophical literature and the lectures, are essentially very ancient. But until the last third of the 19th century, it was not customary, and neither was it necessary, to communicate these truths publicly to the world in the form in which they exist in theosophy today. The cultivation of these truths was a matter for the so-called secret schools and secret societies. A person who wanted to know something about the ancient truths relating to the inner world had to be an accepted pupil, as we say, a pupil of the great teachers of humanity. That anybody went out in order to tell the world certain elementary truths, as we have to do today, that did not happen. Anyone who was admitted had to pass certain tests of their character, their intellectual and other abilities and within the school there was a very strict division into grades. It was impossible, for example, that someone who had just been admitted would have been told secrets of higher grades. In short, everything was strictly regulated, and the world outside knew nothing of the existence of such an occult science, which is, after all, the only true occultism. Who were the people who underwent their training there? As a rule, they were unknown. One was a blacksmith, another a cobbler, a court counselor, a carpenter. All that was known about them was how they presented themselves to the world. It was not known that these people were wise men and women who could look deep into the spiritual and supersensory world. That changed in the last third of the 19th century. It is necessary today for at least the basic part of the occult sciences to be communicated in public, in theosophical writings and lectures, and in other ways. We will see in a moment that this is possible, and why this is so. Now let us first take a look at that previous time, which basically lasted into the 14th century, and partly even to the last third of the 19th century. The preparation of what is happening now the making public of certain elementary teachings of occultism, was prepared by the occult stream, which was founded in the 14th and 15th century by a highly placed individuality, 
who has become known to the world under the name Christian Rosenkreutz. Who this Christian Rosenkreutz is, or who is concealed behind this figure, is only known by the initiates. Only one thing is certain. He is one of the most advanced individualities of modern times, whose task was to shape the occult knowledge of the Middle Ages in such a way that it fitted into modern life. In the last third of the nineteenth century, some people were to go out and tell humanity what it needs to know today. Theosophy is nothing other than the basic teaching of occultism. If we now look back to those far distant times when occultism was practiced in secret, there were three ways in which a person could establish a relationship with the supersensory worlds. First, as an initiate, second, as a clairvoyant, third, as an adept. These were three strictly separate ways in ancient times. And if we want to understand at all what the occult development of the human being involves, we have to keep these three concepts clearly in mind. What a clairvoyant is understood to be is actually well known. I expressly note that the clairvoyant is the more important because they have higher senses in general. It is very simple to explain what a clairvoyant is. Hidden abilities slumber in each human soul. They can be developed, and then a person can see into the world which is hidden to the ordinary senses. There are such methods in occult science. If a person applies them to themselves, then they are not unconscious in sleep, in the sense that ordinary people are. These methods enable that person, when their astral body pushes to get out with the I, capital, to perceive the spiritual world that surrounds them, at first as a flood of light, as light and color phenomena. Then the person starts to hear in the night. This is a real experience which a person has in themselves, that, initially, in this transitional stage, they have a spiritual world around them in the same way that they have a physical one. That is the start of actual clairvoyance. The person who truly wants to reach the stage of clairvoyance must be able to carry over what they initially see in the night into their daytime consciousness, because it would only be a half measure if they were just able to look into the astral world during the night. When they can really set themselves to seeing in a person and animal and so on, not just what exists for the physical senses, but can perceive as a shining aura what the person and animal are feeling, then the stage of modern clairvoyance has been reached. Thus the clairvoyant is a person who can really look into the spiritual world and can tell about it. Imagine there was somewhere where no one had ever seen a railway, and a person from there was transplanted to a place where there is a railway. Then they would know what it is from their own experience. They would be able to tell about it at home from their own experience, in the same way a clairvoyant can bear witness to the spiritual world. But a person who is a clairvoyant in that way is not yet what we might call an adept, and neither what we call an initiate. If such a person who in the previous example has learned about a railway through their own observation, then returns home, they would not be entrusted with building a locomotive. The same applies in the case of the clairvoyant. They cannot yet do what the person can do 
who has practice and scholarship in the supersensory world. This is how the clairvoyant, who has only seen what is in the higher worlds, relates to the adept. And the initiate is someone different again. Another comparison. Imagine a person who can see all colors and lights, and another who is very short-sighted. The former knows nothing about the laws of the world of light. The latter, who cannot see far, knows all the laws very well as an accomplished physicist and scientist. There are people who are initiated to a very high degree, although they are not clairvoyant. At least that applies with regard to all old schools, not to the same degree any longer today. Previously it was possible to work like that, for you must not forget that it is a long process to train clairvoyance or an initiate. Some require many incarnations for that. Now, such work together between clairvoyants and initiates is no longer properly possible today. That is why the Rosicrucian school no longer separates these things so strictly. For humanity today no longer has any concept of the selflessness which used to be active in the esoteric schools. In the Egyptian esoteric schools in particular, there was a collaboration of this kind. But this complete trust no longer exists today. Humanity today no longer has any idea of it. That is why initiates and clairvoyants were only developed to a certain grade in the Rosicrucian schools. On the other hand, great care has to be taken with adeptship. One could easily harm the world. For people are very reluctant to believe that spiritual forces are at work in everything. A storm would be unleashed and the consequence would be that the preparatory understanding would be put at great risk. First clairvoyants and initiates have to make known the occult knowledge and only then will the adepts gradually follow. What is an adept? They exist in all fields. Look at the human being themselves. The human being consists by their nature, of a physical, etheric, and astral body, and the I. The different constitutional elements of human nature develop quite differently in the individual stages of life. That is a very important chapter. Because, for the occultist, the human being is born repeatedly, first physically out of the physical mother, we have the physical body, enclosed by the physical womb. The blood and fluids flow from the mother to the child. When the latter is physically born, this physical womb is detached from the child. That is the first birth. At this point, the etheric body has not yet been born. The second birth takes place at second dentition in the seventh year of life. Until then, the etheric body is enclosed by the etheric envelope, which does not actually belong to the specific etheric body of the child. It is actually not until the seventh year of life that the etheric body is born. The envelope is pushed back, and the outer expression of this event is the appearance of the teeth which a person keeps. To the degree that the teeth emerge, the clairvoyant sees how the etheric body is born out of its parent's envelope. Then, until puberty, the human being is still enveloped by their astral mother, who is there from the beginning and remains also after the seventh year of life. 
then this astral mother is pushed away, and only then is the astral body born, like previously the physical and etheric one. The rise of the human being to puberty indicates the birth of the astral body. The I is not born fully until the period from age 21 to 28. When in the future people know how such a development takes place, it will become clear how it influences education. I have given an account of it in my publication titled The Education of the Child in the Light of Anthroposophy. This pamphlet sets out all the rules which have to be taken into account in this respect. Now, you see, a teacher who had mastered this system would be an adept in the field of education. Such practical work from out of the spiritual worlds, that is adeptship. Up to the seventh year, a kind of hardening of the form occurs in the human being. All the forms of the brain, of the skeletal structure, are created to the seventh year. They continue to grow, but what is not present by the seventh year is irretrievable. In this way, irretrievable things can be neglected in education. From then on, the etheric body is released. So now, you can see how the teeth, which a human being gets, are an expression of whether such hardening and the formation of the etheric body that is being born are in the right proportion to one another. Both of these things are connected, the development of the teeth and the development of the etheric body. Everything that is growth and reproduction is associated with the latter. If one is not in order, the other will not be either. Here we can see how the connection between the teeth and the etheric body is explained out of spiritual science. Women with bad teeth are, for example, more likely to be affected by purpural fever. There must be something of the hardening principle and something of the softening principle. There must be a correspondence between the hardening and softening principle. Ricketts, for example, arises when the softening principle is stronger. Let us assume that the hardening principle predominates. Then the seeds are laid for tuberculosis, for arterial sclerosis. As soon as a person is capable of mastering the etheric and physical body from supersensory causes, they are an adept in the field of child education, just as Paracelsus, who is not understood today, was an adept because he could see the invisible principle at every moment. Now you can imagine the uproar that would break out if you went to the university with such teachings. Humanity first has to be gradually prepared then it will come to the point of demanding from the spiritual leaders that from out of the spiritual world they reinforce their teachings with works. That initiates exist is because the spiritual world can be researched and found by its laws through clairvoyance. But once it has been found and told about, then everything that the clairvoyant tells is comprehensible for ordinary human common sense. And if anyone claims that they cannot understand it, the reason is not that they are not a clairvoyant, but that they do not want to apply their ordinary common sense sufficiently. So one can be an initiate without being a clairvoyant, but one then has to rely on the clairvoyant. And in a certain respect, the theosophical movement wants to help in such a way that everything that is to be made known 
must be obtained through clairvoyance. What, then, is the aim with the public? It is to make people, in a certain sense, into initiates, who understand without being clairvoyant themselves. That is the task of the theosophical movement. It is also the correct relationship between the teachings which are being made known and how they are transmitted to the public at large. Now this real penetration into the supersensory world is based on very specific methods. I have already spoken here specifically about the Rosicrucian method, so I will only mention a few things. If we want to guide a person into the higher worlds, if we want to turn them into a clairvoyant, it is necessary first to develop the forces which are already within them, thinking, feeling, and volition. This already includes many of the things which the first elementary stages bring in terms of difficulty, which we refer to when we draw attention to the dangers. Clairvoyance is too tempting for certain people today, and those who hear something about theosophy are keen to advance to clairvoyance. They are not very pleased when they are told that it is necessary to learn something before you get there. The first thing that a person has to take into account is that they should develop their thinking, thoroughly develop it, and that they should do so here before they become clairvoyant. It is exceptionally difficult to make clear today what is meant by developing the thinking. Because if you can look into the higher worlds through opening the higher senses, you will see that these worlds look quite, quite different from what you imagine here. As a rule, a person who cannot yet look into the higher worlds will have difficulty in imagining what can be experienced, the kind of impressions there, and even less so with regard to the world of clairaudience, the harmony of the spheres. But one thing remains the same through all worlds, logical thinking. If you have learned it here, it is a secure guide in the astral and spiritual world. The impressions are very different. The logic is the same. It only begins to change in the highest worlds. What is offered in the theosophical works and books is non-sensory thinking. If this is not assimilated, then you expose yourself to a certain risk. It is possible to bring someone to see into the astral world, but it must not be forgotten that if you do not stand firmly on the ground of healthy thinking, it is exceptionally difficult to differentiate truth from illusion there. And anyone who cannot do that is simply insane. They are not mentally healthy, and thus expose themselves to the danger of losing their balance when the astral world crashes down on them. We gradually learn to grasp the astral world when we work on the feeling, and this is done through the imagination. I want to show you how this acts on the human being, trains them, and guides them into the astral world. It happens such that, for the human being, all ideas, which are otherwise given in dogmas and abstract concepts, are transformed into images, that they appear pictorially. What we think and say and learn are abstract concepts. It is speculation to begin with. That will not guide anyone into the higher worlds. Not until the concepts are transformed into images 
does a person gradually gain access to the higher worlds. How does the transformation of thoughts into images occur? In the Rosicrucian school, the teacher will tell the pupil, Look at the plant. With its root it reaches into the ground. The stem rises straight up. At the top is the flower and the fruit. And now compare the plant with the human being. With superficial thinking we might be tempted to compare the flower with the head of the human being. And what is at the bottom of the plant with the feet? In truth, the head of the plant is the root, and what the plant chastely holds upward toward the light are the organs of fertilization. That is just the other way round in human beings. The flower turns these organs toward the light. Imagine the whole thing precisely. If you did not hold the organs of fertilization of the plant upward, but toward the center of the earth, they would be permeated with desire and passion. Thus we have in the human being the reverse plant, which is, however, at the same time permeated with desires and passions. As a result, the human body is flesh, and the plant body, the chaste one, is a body that has not yet developed into flesh. And now look at the animal. It is located between plant and human. Plant, animal, and at the top the human being form the cross that runs through the whole of nature. Then the pupil was told, Look at the plant, how it turns its calyx upward, is kissed by the sun, by the ray of light, called the sacred lance of love. The human being had to exchange the plant body with the flesh permeated by desire, but they had before them a high ideal. Here we have to look at the human heart and the larynx. There are two kinds of organ in the human being. Those which are on the way to becoming imperfect and will gradually fall away, and those which are just in the process of formation. All the lower organs, the sexual organs, will fall away. The heart and larynx, on the other hand, are organs which will only have their completion in the future, will only find their development in the future. I speak to you. My thoughts are within me. I put them into words. The latter come out of the larynx, produce sound vibrations, and in this way my thoughts are communicated to your soul. The larynx is the device by which the airwaves are produced to bring out what is in the soul. If someone could invent a device through which the waves could be hardened, then you could pick up my thoughts, my words. In the future the larynx will not just produce words, but it will one day be the creative organ of procreation, which will bring forth beings similar to humans. In certain periods, the plant nature of the human being was not yet permeated by the lustful quality of the flesh. Precisely those organs, which at the latest developed out of animal nature, will be the first to go again. These are the reproductive organs. These were present for a long time as plant organs when the human being already existed in the flesh. That is why in collections there are pictures of hermaphrodites with plant organs. When the Bible tells of Eve's fig leaf, the truth is that this symbol should be understood to mean that these organs were the last to develop in the flesh. This is how we have to delve into the religious records. The sexual organs are declining organs, 
whereas the larynx is fully engaged in the process of transformation. And when human beings will have become chaste again, the larynx will turn toward the spiritual sun again. The calyx of the plant developed into the passion-filled form of the flesh, and the larynx will again develop into the chaste, pure chalice, fertilized by the spirit, which is held toward the sacred lance of love. That is also the symbol of the Holy Grail, its high ideal. Compare this, try to experience a sense of the awe in these images. You have here only one of the images which are given to the pupil of the Rosicrucians. And as you make your way through them in this way, you will gradually realize that your feelings become fact for you. You will observe that these feelings radiate light. It is always streaming out, but the lower human being does not see it. The person who experiences this mystery of the imagination learns to see their feelings. That is the beginning. This has nothing to do with magic, but the ascent to clairvoyance is in the first instance an intimate process through the imagination. But we must become clear about one thing here, for from that moment onward you see everything streaming out of you when you begin to transform your inner life into light. A person must be able to bear what they see there, and this requires a strength of character of which very few people have any idea. So, for example, if you lie without being a clairvoyant, that is bad in itself. But if you lie as a clairvoyant and you see how the lie becomes visible and what it means on the astral plane, then you will understand why it is said that a lie there is murder. And it is so. Suppose you have seen an event, have formed an idea about it, and say something that is not true. In other words, something that is a lie. Then what flows from the object is correct, and what flows from you is false. And this collision is a terrible explosion. And each time you do this, you attach a gruesome being to your karma, which you cannot get rid of again until you have made good what you lied about. Everyone who wants to become clairvoyant has to develop three virtues which they necessarily need. First, trust in themselves. They must be sure of themselves. Second, self-knowledge. They must never shy away from seeing their mistakes. And third, presence of mind. For they will encounter many things on the astral plane. But although these things always surround us, it is a different matter to see them. That is why these qualities must be primarily trained, and it is actually a folly when some school or society turns people into clairvoyance without guiding them in this way. Now, if the pupil is influenced in another way, through what is called occult writing, they are led up into the spiritual world of Devakan, into listening. Here a person has to immerse themselves in the images we have for the course of people's development. I will place such an image before your soul as an example. Think of the ancient times when the human being first developed in their present form. At that time the earth was a warm, glowing ball of fire, and all metals and minerals were melted in the red-hot earth. Physicists will say, There couldn't yet be any humans then. Human beings at that time descended from the Godhead, and form themselves in the fiery masses. The transformation is a long process. 
If you could see what the clairvoyant can observe, you would see that they envelop themselves with the body of fire. Where then has the fire gone which glowed on the earth? Where is it? In your blood. All the warmth which is and has always been in human beings and animals is the burning heat of the earth. And once you are able to transform your blood again so that it shines, that will be the case when the human larynx has been transformed into the Holy Grail, then the human being will emit shining masses again. If the human being now immerses themselves in an image such as this, then they can become seeing, hearing. I would like to draw your attention to the prologue of the book of Revelation, which says, quote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, These are images which have been used for development in the Rosicrucian schools. The clairvoyant must learn to decipher such images. The development of the earth will be the word, and the word will be with the human being, and the human being will create the human being through the word. The end of lecture one.